Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a Fremantle Australia podcast recorded at the Sydney studios. And a warning, this podcast contains adult themes and explicit language. So tell me, tell me, tell me, I need to know. How did it happen? What did you do? Oh, tell me, tell me. I've got all forever to tell you this. I just need to know. My name is Julia Robson. I'm a private investigator, and you're listening to Chasing Charlie. In late 2011, I had been brought a case that had me hooked. A New Zealand man calling himself Charlie had conned my client, the shy yet once bubbly Vivian, out of the best part of $70,000, out of love and out of her confidence. When she came to me, she was emotionally destroyed, financially ruined and mentally scarred. I had worked out pretty quickly that the sexually controlling, emotionally abusive Charlie wasn't who he said he was. But the question was, who was he? Now there's a lot of information coming up in this episode, so you'll hear quite a lot from me, but it is important, so it's worth paying attention. And well, it's also just plain incredible. I had set up a surveillance op that led me to my first vital clue in chasing down Charlie. Charlie's real name was Paul Brian Gill. Granted, this was a huge step in the right direction, but Gil's not exactly an unusual name, and Paul certainly isn't. My next challenge was to find out exactly which of all the Paul Gills that existed on paper was the one I wanted to track down. It took a while to zero in on the right family. It's not like one day I stand in front of my computer and, hey presto, I find the right family. No, I have to chip away, work on something else, come back to it, have another look, discount one family, and start again. Generally, when people are lying, there are elements of the truth in their story, but they embellish from there. So you work off some base points. He's saying he's from a country town in New Zealand. His family's in automobiles with some kind of machinery. I think he told another person that he was from outside of Hamilton. So... Firstly, I'm a Kiwi, so I'm really familiar with those areas. And from there, I can target my searches in terms of historic records. Things like Ancestry and online subscription databases. Okay, so right, we're here now. What family by the name of Gil were around that area at around that time? At first, I just couldn't work out where exactly Charlie had grown up. He kept telling everyone he was from a small town. So as soon as I could confirm that there was a Gill family in Huntley and that they'd started the successful company, then I thought, okay, this has got to be the family. Plus, this family also had a relative based out Tauranga Way, near Mount Maunganui, which is where Charlie had told people he'd spent a lot of time. So that was it. I knew 
This is definitely the family, because Charlie was recalling memories from both of these places. So now I had the right Paul Gill, I could really get started. I could access his birth record, his school records, his employment history, and start making contact with people who used to know him and really dig into Charlie's past life. This is a part of the job I love, starting to see the ghost of the person you've been chasing take shape. I would say he always had a woman, even if he didn't have him in, the, in his house, but he was seeing someone and then they would end up living together. No, I don't think he's ever been without a woman. I think he would just go from one to the next, and if he thought something was coming to an end, you know, that's when he would particularly um, put the charm on and then pull someone else on, I guess. On the 9th of August 1955, the person that was to grow up to be the womanising, defrauding Charlie, real name Paul Brian Gill, made his appearance into the world. He was the third of four children. The family did indeed live in Huntley, a small, tight-knit, working-class community just over an hour south of Auckland on New Zealand's North Island. The family were well-established. Charlie's grandfather had founded the family's truck and transport business back in the early 1950s, which Charlie's father eventually took over. Once described to me as the Kardashians of Huntley, the Gill family had access to cars, boats, and even light aircraft as the business went from strength to strength. I've wondered if it was this upbringing, surrounded by so much transport and machinery, that taught Charlie the skills that made him the confident tradesman he was to proclaim to be. His father worked incredibly hard, and from the outside looking in, the Gill family appeared to be a stable, successful and loving family. But as I continued to dig, a different story was emerging, at least for Charlie. It was his mother who was the authoritarian of the family, She was a strong woman, and Charlie's relationship with her was volatile. I was to later learn, from discreet sources, that she regularly disciplined Charlie with a belt. This did make me wonder if Charlie's preoccupation towards BDSM had somehow manifested from his childhood in this fractured relationship with his mother. But then, maybe not. I'd also discovered that when Charlie was 13, he was sent to boarding school, and in addition to the beltings he received at home, he was also caned at school. This is Tracy. You'll meet her properly later. But no, I remember talking to him, and he always used to say it's his parents' fault because he lived in Huntley, and um, he, they sent him away to boarding school, and he said that's what screwed him up. Do you know what I'm honestly saying? I can't recall what it was. I just know he didn't have a good time at boarding mm. school, and... Um, I do believe something happened to him then, back to then when he was quite young, and he felt very, very rejected being sent off to boarding school, and I remember that was a huge thing that he always did say, and I actually believed him, you know, because it was always like he was um, he was trying to be someone that he wasn't, just to show his parents that he could do it. Um, that, that's what I got from him a lot. A person's background can tell you so much about them, give you clues as to why they might be the way they are, and it doesn't just help you understand them now, it can also help you work out what they might do next. I kept digging. Social media is a wonderful resource for any private investigator. I could see that the family were interlinked with each other on Facebook and other social networking sites, so as soon as I knew a little bit more about each individual, 
I could cross-reference that with various public company records and see the different directorships and who's coming and going from these companies so I was able to see when there had been arguments and disputes. Essentially, it's all part of the research stage and part of this was to try and find out if there were any other known criminals in his family. But I couldn't find anyone. It seems that Charlie had taken this path alone. He didn't speak much about any of his brothers, uh, any of his family. He was the black sheep of the family and he fully acknowledged that and then I think he became quite proud of it. Charlie had been good looking in his younger days and a notorious ladies man, sleeping with as many of the girls at school as he could. But once he hit 18, and for reasons I still don't know, Charlie was thrown out of the family home. It didn't take him long to put his good looks and charm to work, and he'd soon moved in with a much older woman. I had started to suspect early on that there was more to Charlie's duplicity than conning Vivian. Something in my gut told me that he hadn't limited himself to conning her, or even to just conning women. You have to trust your gut in this game, and thankfully it's usually right. It seems Charlie didn't discern when it came to who, or how, he took money from people. Charlie started his first company, Gill Engineering, in Auckland in 1982. From what I've managed to piece together, it was around this time he started to delve into a world of fraud. Staff were owed money, the company went under, and people started knocking on the door to collect. Less than three years after setting up, Charlie declared bankruptcy and first exhibited what was to become one of his most polished skills, skipping town. It wasn't just bad debt he left behind. By this time, he had been married and had two children. And while neither his first wife nor his first two children are involved in the series, I can say that I heard rumours of multiple affairs. As I was starting to find out, Charlie was never without a woman for long. Here's Tracy again. She was still a teenager when she met Charlie in 1984, transitioning from a troubled childhood into a young woman, and at a point in her life where she says she was young, naive and in desperate need of love. I only know that I was nearly 20. I'm just trying to work it out. A lot of me's blocked out a lot of years. <laughs> I was with a guy who um, who I left and I didn't know where to go. So I put an ad in the paper. I was working, so I was earning a bit of money. And then I put an ad in the paper that I wanted to rent somewhere. And who rang me up? This guy, Paul. So um, I've got a room to rent in Mount Eden, um, this lovely big villa. Um, would that interest you? Of course, it interested me. Um, so that was it. I went round there, and um, it was the beginning of that life. There was very little time between Tracy moving in as a housemate and Tracy living there as Charlie's girlfriend. He came on strong and quickly became her whole world. If I'm going to be really honest with you, he was more like a father figure to me than an actual boyfriend. I I really just, you know, I was just so lost and I had rejection from my own family. So that's all I had in my life. That was, he was my world. And, and I really mean that. He was my everything. So to me, it, it was more of a father-daughter relationship and certainly indeed it was. And I know that sounds really sick, but I just, you know, I was just, I was just dutiful. I, I had no um, normal womanly, you know, feelings like that towards him because I was, I just wasn't well myself. 
Mm. Um, I was still quite a young girl, you know, inside for so many reasons that um, that's really all I was the whole time, even at 30. <laughs> as, as awful as it is, yeah, really, really sad, but that was me. When someone becomes the centre of someone else's world, they tend to go along with everything they want and learn not to question things. It's a self-protecting mechanism. If we don't ask the question, we can't be told the answers we don't want to hear. Tracy's vulnerability and her need for love meant that, at least at first, she didn't really question Charlie at all. She was dependent on him, and this dependence meant they ended up staying together for 13 years. And although Charlie respected Tracy's absolute refusal to take part in any form of BDSM or bondage, one thing was constant. He was never faithful. Sorry, I'm getting mixed up. There was another girl, um, dark hair. She was really pretty, but he called her a nutter. And of course, she probably wasn't a nutter. But she broke into her house one middle, middle of the night one night and stood at the end of the bed. It was really creepy. Um, what? Tell me. I'm trying to remember her name. Um, this was this girl that he that he was having a thing with while I was with him. And um, he, he moved into the house in Birkin here. And he, but anyway, he had this thing with this woman who fell madly for him because it was all chill, you know. And um, she jumped into our window one night and just stood at the end of the bed. And he woke up in the middle of the night and chased her out of the house. And called her mad and, you know, and all of that. But that was just another poor victim of him, you know, um, playing mind games. It was a really real love-hate relationship for me. It was sickening because, you know, why don't you want to be with me? Even though there's this whole thing like, I really hate you. I hate you, but, you know, but I can't live without you because it's like it was like a drug. It's like family. He was my family. He was all I had. It's, it's really hard to explain it, but I, get you, I think you know. I felt I was starting to. Listening to Tracy talk like this reminded me of Vivian when she told me that her friends asking her not to see Charlie was like asking her not to breathe. I was also beginning to feel some relief that Vivian got out when she did and before she too followed Charlie from pillar to post. I was living on a boat with him in Auckland, in West Auckland, um, because he'd moved out of, he'd been kicked out of another rental because he, you know, spent the rent money or didn't have the rent money. That was a that was a normal thing. Um, never never staying anywhere long enough because he just tried not to pay rent. Did you stay in Auckland the whole time? No, no, no. He's been around. I went around with him to um, we went to Rotorua at one stage. Went to um, Tauranga Tipuki. That was another horrible part of my life. Opened a gas shop, retail shop there. He wanted me to do it under my name because he'd been bankrupt. I mean, I just basically wanted to believe everything he said, you know, and I'd say, when I, if I did find out that he'd um, treated someone badly with money, I'd say, look, I just can't be doing this, and then I'd leave. And it, it must have happened four to six times over the years, um, but I unfortunately didn't manage to stay away because of my own needs. I think we, were, we weren't even open even three months. And I think his past started always starts catching up with him. Um, and I think he was he was different under a different name then. If it wasn't Paul Lovelock, it was um, oh, if you said it, I'd know it. Um, but he was in Chipoki under a different name anyway. 
I don't think he's ever paid for anything. He just got stuff, you know. Um, I don't know how, quite how he did it, but we ended up with a shop full of stuff. It's easy to ask why Tracy didn't start asking questions. I did wonder a little myself, although sadly I wasn't surprised by the answer. Just nothing good, you know, and I just, I, I guess I had blinders on, you know, and I, I, I mean, a lot of people would say, I can't believe you stayed that long and you, you know, didn't know what was going on, but I sort of, I sort of did, but I didn't know, you know, everything was everyone else's fault. And I was so damaged from my, from my own childhood that, um, you know, that I just, you just, yeah, I can't describe it. It's just a, it's just something that you just, you don't see fully. And I don't know whether it's you don't want to see fully or yeah. you just, you know, I just can't explain it. I'm sorry. I tried to leave him in town and I ended up with a guy who actually hit me. So I ended up oh, going back no. with Paul. This is, well, this is what happened. You know, yeah. I just got it out. I felt sick the whole time I was with Paul. In my gut, I felt sick the whole time. I didn't even want to be with him the whole time. But I had nowhere else. I had no one to love me. And I know that sounds silly, but it's so true. You know, and people can't put other people down for that because you just don't know what's happened in someone's life. You know, and you can be an intelligent person and still, you know, be completely screwed up. Do you, do you know I hate to say this? He's so, so, so smart and so clever, but so stupid. I, I just don't, I don't know either. I just really don't know. The police could never quite, you know, nail him down. But, but how come that is? There's so much wrong he's done. He's hurt so many people. In, mon- monetary, in monetary ways, it's obviously very much so. I mean, he got me... I mean, I had to go bankrupt. I went bankrupt, you know, he, he encouraged it, of course, to go bankrupt voluntarily, because he knows the ins and outs of all the systems. He knows they go on and on and on. He does it, he does it on purpose. He, make, he knows how to make things go on and on and on. You know, that's been his life. He knows how to play it. The more I found out about Charlie, the more I became grateful to Vivian for bringing this case to me. The scale of his deceptions grew with everything I found out. Even something as simple as historic bankruptcy records threw up important information. By 1993, Charlie had been discharged from his first bankruptcy, and having got himself a job as a plumber, he'd been using company purchase orders to furnish his own house and cashing company checks to fund his personal lifestyle. It's as though with his affluent childhood, Charlie had somehow felt entitled to whatever he wanted. Finally, he'd been charged with theft and intent to defraud and taken to court. But like Tracy said, he knew how to play the system. Pleading not guilty, it had taken two years to go through the courts before he was finally found guilty in 1995 and sentenced to 200 hours community service. But this meant nothing to Charlie. And by 1996, on fraud-related offences, Charlie was locked up. They put him into one of those kind of boot camp jails where he used to, you know, he'd go out and work in the field and he'd fuck off during the day, go and meet women, fuck them and then go back and go back inside. So, and he used to laugh about that, that he was incarcerated, but he wasn't really, he was still free to do what he wanted. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uncovering Charlie's past was becoming somewhat of an obsession for me. The more I found out about his cons, his deceptions, his trail of caring for no one but himself, the more I became determined to find this fellow Kiwi. I was deeply ashamed that someone I shared a national identity with could be so deceitful and so cruel. And once I get my teeth into something, I find it hard to let go. I guess that's why my husband calls me the Barnacle. I'd found out that after a short stint in prison in 1996, Charlie went home to Tracy. But as ever with Charlie, all was not as it seemed. He'd started seeing this girl. I knew he was like having another life, but I just couldn't, you know, I just didn't know. I needed to prove it to myself because he was such a good liar. Like I knew something was going on and I'd say, where have you been for three days, you know? And he'd say, oh, whatever, whatever, I've been up at my boat at Otua, because there was always a boat involved. Then what what happened was I followed him one day. I I just turned into this little mini detective because I was just so screwed around in my head and I, I met a friend here and we we found out where he was and he'd, he'd, he'd had this other life going on with in Otua in this house. And I found the house and I saw things there that I, you know, furniture there that I, you know, lived with around me for years and stuff and he was still actually living with me so he was having you know he was having two lives around that time this double life had been going on for some time and the duplicity was astounding the woman involved was jackie who was to become his second wife but already her first child to charlie had been born it takes a special kind of person to pull off leading a double life the big lies are easy but it's the little day-to-day ones that tend to trip people up. Where's the toothpaste in this house? Where do I keep my socks when I'm here? Where did I say I was again yesterday? Did I just mention the baby cried a lot last night? You need to be fluent in the language of lying to be able to do this. And Charlie wasn't just fluent, he was positively bilingual. I was back on his trail, pretty confident that Charlie's short spell in prison had no more made him a law-abiding citizen than it had made him a model husband. I'll admit this case was getting more and more under my skin. I'd even wrote my dad in to go to the library and look at old archives there that had to be viewed in person. With the help of these records, I had worked out roughly where Charlie had been spending time through old addresses we'd managed to pick up. I could now reach out to the courts in those areas, requesting all the records they had in his name. The Wellington District Court files dated 2004 were a fascinating read. And the said Crown solicitor further charges that the said Paul Brian Gill, on or about the 4th of May 1999 at Northland, with intent to defraud, used a document, namely a bank direct credit account application capable of being used to obtain a benefit to obtain for himself a benefit. And the said Crown solicitor further charges that the said Paul Brian Gill on or about the 28th of May 1999 at Wangarei 
with intent to defraud, did use a document, namely a National Bank of New Zealand limited simply business credit application form, capable of being used to obtain a benefit to obtain for Far North Colonial Furniture Company a benefit. And the said Crown solicitor further charges that the said Paul Brian Gill on or about the 8th of June 1999 at Rotorua with intent to defraud did use a document, namely a National Bank of New Zealand cheque for $45,481.44 capable of being used to obtain a benefit to attempt to obtain for himself a benefit. Looking at these, it was obvious that Charlie had started offending again as soon as he'd got out of prison in the mid-90s. Far from going straight, it seems as if the key revelation he'd had when he was inside was that the only way he was going to succeed in life was to pretend he was something he wasn't or someone he wasn't. His fascination with water and a yachting life led to big dreams of setting up a fishing charter operation in the Bay of Islands. So, hey presto, Charlie had instantly reinvented himself as a millionaire. And the said Crown solicitor further charges that the said Paul Brian Gill, on or about the 27th of December 1996 at Auckland, with intent to defraud by a false pretense, namely by falsely representing that his assets, as at December 1996, totaled $1,599,360, did induce Brian Brambry to execute a valuable security, namely an agreement for sale and purchase of the motor vessel Marengi. It went on. And the said Crown solicitor further charges that the said Paul Brian Gill, on or about the 8th of June 1999 at Auckland, did represent himself to be Lance Jenkins with intent to fraudulently obtain for himself a benefit. These are only some of the charges. There were 22 listed against him. But think about this. These 22 counts of fraudulent behaviour are only the ones that he got caught for. I dread to think how long the true list would be. But that last name, Lance Jenkins, a name Charlie had started to use to fraudulently obtain for himself a benefit, that wasn't a random name plucked from nowhere. That was no mere alias. Then, between May 1999 and June 1999, You made numerous applications for credit with various organisations, and it is at that time that you were using the false name of Lance Robert Jenkins. That, of course, is the name of your brother-in-law, and you went to some lengths to be deceptive, and on occasions used photocopies of driver's licences and birth certificates in that name, and used fictitious details as to income. These applications were for credit cards with Westpac Trust, The Warehouse, American Express and the like. It also included opening various bank accounts and entering into higher purchase arrangements. Lance was Jackie's younger brother. Yeah, that's right, his own wife's little brother. Testament to his utter disregard for who he rips off. This was no easy thing for Lance to get over. It wasn't just the money taken, it was the stress, the constant questioning of his credit rating and the difficulties carrying on any form of normal business that he, the real Lance Jenkins, had to contend with in any of his financial dealings. It knew no bounds. No one was off limits. Charlie not only impersonated his brother-in-law, a wonderful Charlie had put $70,000 worth of debt into his own son's name. None of this came to light until a few years after the event. As I said, 
I'd found most of this out from the 2004 court records, and the sentencing was flabbergasting. Despite all 22 counts, Charlie was not locked up. Instead, having apologised remorsefully in what I can only imagine was a very believable manner, he is, after all, an extremely proficient liar. In promising to pay back the money, Charlie was given home detention. This left him free to carry on. But that's the problem with con men like Charlie. The amounts are never quite big enough for serious sentencing. The apologies appear genuine, the promises to repay are believed. These are people that know how to play the system, and the courts don't want to lock people up if they don't think they have to. If only they knew. But that's where I come in. It's my job to track down all that other stuff, sniff down the details, uncover the witnesses and the evidence, wrap it up in a nice tidy bow, and hand it over to the police. Easy. Charlie, I discovered, had been very busy not being Charlie, or even not being Paul, while the real Charlie, Paul Brian Gill, had been bankrupted for the second time back in 1996. His aliases were living the life Charlie always thought he deserved. Chasing a ghost is one thing, chasing a shapeshifter is another entirely. By 2004, he was using no less than 12 different aliases. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Charlie had set up a workshop back in the mid to late 90s offering his services as a furniture maker. Things actually seemed to have worked for a while until there was a fire that destroyed the business and there was no money to pay the creditors. Money was tight and Charlie was committing petty theft which ultimately resulted in his third bankruptcy. So, with his back against the wall, Charlie tried to do what he knew best. He tried to get fraudulent lines of credit In fact, he tried to get money any which way he could. And in July 2004, shortly before he went to court for the 22 offences against him, Charlie made his media debut. He had taken one too many deposits from one too many customers at his new furniture business and had delivered nothing in return. New Zealand's popular primetime current affairs show Fair Go outed Charlie. You may have come across Paul Gill. According to the Insolvency and Trustee Service, he's also known as Paul Johnson, W.D. Bruins, Paul Jackson, Paul Lovelock, Chris Jackson, Gil Thomas, Anthony Carroll, Paul McGill, T.P. McGill, Paul Jenkins and Lance Jenkins. Kevin Milne, the Fairgo host, together with his camera crew and two of Charlie's disgruntled customers, turned up on his doorstep to demand their money back. I've been waiting for a year now, Paul, 
for my chair, well, table I thought for my chair. Excuse me, I thought your deposit should have been paid. If you want to come back this afternoon. No, oh, sick we're of sick, of, sick, sick of, of these stories. Sick of these Now, if you've been paying attention, you'll know that at this time, Charlie was also bankrupt for the third time. And given he was operating a business, his TV appearance drew unwanted attention to the fact he was now in breach of the Insolvency Act. He was also recognised for his previous crimes in the Bay of Islands, and by that November, he was charged with the 22 dishonesty offences. That brings us back to that 2004 rap sheet. After pleading guilty and offering false promises and fake remorse, Charlie was ordered to repay all monies. But in terms of his freedom, he received only home detention for all 22 of these charges. Reading that was like a belly blow. This, of course, meant he was free to continue operating as a furniture maker. Within the year, the Fairgo camera crew had returned with yet more unhappy customers. This time, Charlie had backup. His wife was also there. You don't give us stuff about the people that you owe money to. You worry about yourselves all the bloody time. Oh, that is so not true. Well, isn't it about time you start... We work Sorry, I got a bit testy there. But the girls have caused a lot of grief to a lot of people over a long time. It's always been an anomaly to me how Charlie was still a free man after all of this. It seemed as though despite all the mud, not enough of it was sticking. It's a professional frustration when you know that someone's done so much more than what they've been held accountable for. Even in 2005, when charged with three breaches of the Insolvency Act, all he got was 300 hours community service. He was falling between the cracks. Not scamming large enough amounts to scare the banks, no violent crimes against him. He was shape-shifting again. One of the great things about online investigation is how much technology can help you. From my own desk in Melbourne, I could search through all the tangled threads of the web all digital company records. Rather surprisingly, Charlie's real name and address kept coming up. By 2008, the then 52-year-old Charlie was living in Papamoa, a popular holiday destination in the Bay of Plenty, and he had found himself a new way of engineering fast cash. Online auction sites like eBay and the New Zealand version called TradeMe had really started to gain popularity around this time. And it didn't take long for Charlie to work out a way to exploit this newfound playground. Using the profile name Lionheart55, he was advertising timber decking online, selling batches for anything between $1,000 and $4,000 each, and the complaints had quickly started stacking up. As soon as buyers had transferred the money, Charlie was ready with a myriad of excuses explaining why he couldn't deliver. Thousands and thousands of dollars worth of fraudulent sales and dozens of victims later, Charlie had earned himself the title of Trade Me's worst online seller. And the police were now well aware of Charlie, his petty thefts and his previous scams. In 2009, a warrant was issued for these Trade Me frauds. Charlie knew his luck on his home turf had run out. He knew if he was caught this time, he was facing some serious jail time. And serious jail time terrified him. Prison frightens him. He'll do anything to stay out of prison. 
that's what I remember him always saying to me. That freaks him out. He doesn't want to be in prison. He, he always said it would kill him. So, what do you do when you're wanted for fraud in New Zealand and terrified of going to prison? If you're Charlie, you do the thing you do best, just better. This time, he didn't just skip town, he skipped the country completely and headed to where any aspiring millionaire yachtsman would go, the French Riviera. The more I uncovered about Charlie, the more one thing became clear. If I didn't stop him, nobody would. Next time on Chasing Charlie. How did you get all this head injured? Because I mean, the man looks like a rat. He's really unattractive. He's, how did he manage to stand all these women? This is George Clooney lookalike. You could understand it. And he's a very unpleasant looking man. And how he manages it. <laughs> and it was that day that was said to me, You got any gold? I've got a friend who's paying double the guiding rate. You know, if you've got any gold, you want to cash in, give it to me. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, leave a review and recommend to another true crime fan. Make sure to subscribe to Chasing Charlie on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to keep up to date with the latest instalment. If you have further information on this story, please reach out to us at chasingcharlie@fremantle.com. The content of this podcast is a result of Julia Robson's investigation into Charlie and information provided to her by his victims. Some names have been changed to protect the identities of those involved. Chasing Charlie is a Fremantle Australia production. Executive producers Jesse Klass and Liz Burnett. Series producer Rebecca Vallis. Original concept and writing by Julia Robson. Edited and mixed by James Ezra, with additional editing by Katie Morris. Recording and technical assistance by Alex Elliott. Legal and business affairs by Maddie Marchant. Recording assistance by Brendan Ganey and Tom Lawton, with additional research by Georgina Rain. Stephen Dennis plays the voice of Charlie. If you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, please contact Lifeline on 13114, Beyond Blue on 1300 224636, or another crisis hotline in your local area. We are grateful for the help of the victims and families involved in creating this podcast. Thank you.